course, and that everything in God's Word is uh, always uh, an encouragement. Sometimes there are warnings there, but the warnings are helpful. And the thing I've discovered is that the, the Lord is very faithful to warn us not to go down certain paths. God's Word is very clear, so hopefully we listen to the warnings that are found there. Let's open up a, in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time, Lord, this time of worship, at this time of fellowship that we have as well. And we ask, Lord, that you'd bless now the study of your word. We just want to remember those in our fellowship that aren't feeling well. We ask, Lord, for, for a healing for, um, for Sean and his migraine and for Cindy and her sore throat and for Medell who's not feeling well and for... Uh, Faith Culbertson, and Lord, any others that might not be feeling well this evening, we just pray, God, for your hand to be upon them. Your word tells us to, that the prayer of faith would heal the sick. And Lord, we just want to ask in faith, Lord, that you would heal the sick. Lord, we also want to lift up the conference, the women's conference coming up this weekend. And Lord, we just pray that you'd bring the ladies to come and enjoy a, a time of God's word, a teaching of God's word, but of fellowship with each other and of worship as well. And Lord, we ask you to bless now your word as we study it. Speak to our hearts, and it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So this is really the end of Solomon, at least as far as First um, Kings is concerned. We've seen how God has blessed Solomon We've seen, uh, again, to the heart that Solomon began with, really, uh, you know, David handed off uh, a kingdom that was in, in wonderful shape. David, mighty in battle, had defeated enemies, had established a stockpile of resources and, and, and materials, really, so that Solomon could build the temple to the Lord. And over the course of Solomon's life, um, he really demonstrated himself initially as having a heart for God. But one of the things that many times happens when we prosper is that there is a, a tendency to turn away from God and to just trust those things that, again, too, we have, the, the resources that we have or the abilities that we have. God has given Solomon wisdom, more wisdom than any other man living at that time. And one thing I should bring up, and I've brought it up before, but I'm going to bring it up because it really ties in with this chapter and the previous chapter we looked at, you know, when it describes how, again, too, the abundance that Solomon had in his kingdom. And it's found in Exodus chapter, um, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And it's a warning. I mean, basically at the time that this is given, is given at a time when the, the nation of Israel didn't even have a king. For hundreds of years, they were basically governed by God, and God would speak to them through His prophets. But you know what happened. You know that the time came when they basically wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have a king. They had rejected the, the sons of, of uh, Eli, and or I'm sorry, of Samuel from from again to being the, the, the priests and, and, and governing or judging over them. And Deuteronomy chapter 17, God foresees the day that this would come. And there's certain things that, that it instructs when it, when it basically points out the day that, that a king would come. But there's, there's three things that they're warned against. Warned against multiplying. 
And actually Deuteronomy 17 verse 15 says, You shall in any wise set a king over you whom the Lord your God shall choose. One from among your brethren shall you set king over you. You may not set a stranger over you which is not your brother. And then it says in verse 16, But he shall not multiply horses to himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt. One of the things that, that again, too, we've seen this previously as it describes uh, the might of Solomon's army, the expansion of his kingdom, and the number of horses, I believe, that he had, uh, you know, uh, available for his, his army was over 40,000. So it's interesting because God's word says in, in verse 16 not to multiply horses. And again, you would think, well, if you have the ability to have those type of military resources, why wouldn't you want to do that? And yet it's clear because everything that God is saying to do or basically instruct the king is, is, is a way of saying that God wants his people to trust him and that they're in their faith in God, God is the one that fights their battles. So yeah, it's important to have an army, but you know what? There's a point where you're trusting in the might of your own army instead of trusting in God. So it says there in verse 16, he's not, gonna, he's not to multiply horses to himself. And it says, for, mu for as much as the Lord hath said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Speaking of going back to Egypt. Then in verse 17, it says, and this is speaking of any future king of the nation of Israel. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Well, we're going to see from our chapter that Solomon has, in essence, a thousand wives. He's got 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. Basically, it's kind of like she, these concubines are there for pleasure. They're, they don't have the complete status that a wife would have. But when you've got a thousand women, basically, in your harem, that is a lot. And I'm pretty sure that Chap, you know, Deuteronomy 18.17 applies to exactly you know, what Solomon is doing here because it says he's not to multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And we saw from the previous description, especially when the Queen of Sheba had come, of all the gold that was there and of Solomon's agreements that he had had with Hiram and for the building of his navy to specifically go to Ophir to get gold and to bring gold back and that silver, there was so much silver again too, it was like rocks and you know on the ground, there was so much silver as well. And yet there are three things that, that a king is warned against and yet in these very three things Solomon is guilty. So getting to our passage in 1 Kings chapter 11, it says that Solomon loved many strange women. Now, old King James says many strange women. That means foreigners, although I suppose if you have a thousand wives, there's bound to be a few of them that are strange. I stole that joke from Joe Foch. <laughs> yeah. It says, anyway, he loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. The implication being that the daughter of Pharaoh was his first wife. And it says, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord had said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. 
Solomon clave unto these in love. I don't understand that. I mean, a thousand wives, and he loves them all. You know, imagine being with him, one of his wives being with him, and, you know, how much do you love me? Do you love me more than the other wives? Oh, I love you just as much as I love everybody else. I, I don't know, just, a, really, a thousand? I was listening to a study one time, and I think, uh, I heard somebody actually do the calculation. You know, there's 52 weeks in a year. If he was to get married, have a wedding, every week, it would take him over, what, 500 years to get married? So he has to be marrying them in groups. You know what I mean? 30 or 40 at a time every week. I don't know. I mean, because, again, it would just take too long because 50 a week, you know, to, to hit that thousand number, it's going to take, you know, 500 years. So am I math right on that? <laughs> no, it isn't. How many years would it be? 50 divided by a thousand. What? 20 years. Oh, okay, well, that's better. That's doable. <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> he could do that if he started when he was 17. By the time he's 37, he's got all of his wives. But again, too, I want to read the passage that God's Word talks about this as far as marrying other women and other wives. One of the, and there's a, a couple of places that it's brought up. One of them is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, but also Exodus chapter 34, I believe is the first place where it really is mentioned. And in Exodus chapter 34, verse 10, it says, and this is God saying, Behold, I make a covenant before all the people. I do marvels such as have not been seen, done in all the earth, nor any nation, and all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with you. Verse 11, Observe thou that which I command you this day. Behold, I drive out before you the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Hittite and the Perizzite, the, the, the Hivite or the Hivite and the Jebusite. Verse 12, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither you go, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call you, and you shall eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters unto your sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods. Make thy sons, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. There's a lot of a-whoring going on. And it says, and you shall make no molten gods. Now, again, too, there's a reason why. It's not like God doesn't like, you know, intermarrying. You know, you're not to marry, you know, somebody from a different race or culture. The purpose is very clear. The purpose is the, this wanting to protect God's people from, from, again, to being seduced from a relationship with God and worshiping false gods. It's a spiritual protection that God is providing. Now, here's the thing, you know, as far as the warning goes, because, again, to the same thing is basically found in the New Testament for us as believers in Christ. 
There's a warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that a non-believer or that a believer shouldn't be unequally yoked with a non-believer. And it says, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has uh, he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It's interesting, all the things that constantly are working at trying to pull you away from a relationship with God. And one of them is just a relationship with somebody who is not a believer. I know for me... <laughs> before the Lord blessed me with my wife. You know, I was in the Marine Corps at the time. I wanted to get married. Who doesn't want to get married? And again, too, I think sometimes the enemy plays on those fears. You could be single or whatever. And I remember coming home on leave one time. And uh, I know what God's Word says about not be, being unequally yoked. And yet at the same time, you you know, I, I, I've, I think I've told this story before. I ended up... I was, I don't even know why I didn't have my car, but for some reason I was taking the city bus. Well, I, I know it was, must have been a weekend because I used to fly home on the weekends um, from sh the Chicago area. So uh, I, I'm taking the bus from somewhere downtown and I'm st standing on the corner and I, I, I started engaging in this conversation with this woman, a young girl, and I'm a young guy at the time. I was probably 19, 18, I mean 20 at the time. And as I started engaging into this conversation with her, she's like, oh, she's cute, and, you know, I think I'll ask her out. And come to find out that she was a friend of the family. Her family, her parents knew my parents, and we're taking the city bus, and we get off at the exact same bus stop, you know, to walk. I'm walking two blocks to go to my house. She's walking the opposite direction. So I ask her out. And the interesting thing was is, you know, you know, like I said, the, we, we didn't really know each other until we went out, and then we realized, okay, our families know each other, and she was good friends with my cousin as well. So, again, too, that's the background. We go out on a date, and again, too, it was nice. She was a nice girl. But at the same time, in my own heart, I felt convicted because I knew she wasn't a believer. And yet at the same time, just like, oh, I have I want to be in a relationship I want to get married it's like this is never gonna happen Lord but I go out with this girl and 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 again too I I'm I'm a gentleman and I drop her off I borrowed my dad's car but afterwards I drop her off she was going to school at McAllister that should have been a red flag for me right there if you know anything about McAllister college but I drop her off and and I'm very polite open doors that kind of thing I still do if my wife doesn't beat me to the, the car door, but I try to open doors and that kind of stuff. But but afterwards, she's, she, she sent me a very nice card back, you know, thanking me for the date. And then my cousin calls me up and says, oh, you know, you went out with so-and-so. and Oh, she was just so impressed with what a gentleman you were and this and that. And, and, and my cousin was asking, she was trying to pump me for information. I said, well, it was okay. And, and, and in my own heart, I'm just convicted. 
So I thought, well, you know what, we went out once, we had a nice time, but I'm just, I know that I shouldn't go out with her anymore because, again, what God's Word says as far as a believer being, you know, involved with a non-believer. So I get, I, I'm off leave, I get stationed out in, in California, and she starts writing me letters. And again, too, when you're away, it's nice to get a letter, but then I'm thinking, okay. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe she's a believer or something. Well, then she, she writes this one thing on a card. She says, you ever read the Bible? And I'm thinking, oh, praise the Lord. She's a, maybe she's a Christian. She writes, you ever read the Bible? She says, I like smoking pot and then reading the Bible. <laughs> I thought, no, she's not a believer. <laughs> She's not for me. Lord, I'm sorry. Are you moaning again? What's the matter? Is there like sympathy for her? I'm trying to do what God's word says. I'm waiting for the wife that God is going to give me eventually. So here's the thing. There's a reason why God says these things. And it's amazing to me how at times we think that we are above what God's word says or we think that that won't happen to me or we think you know again I, I, I'm going to do I know what God's word clearly says but I'm going to do something other than what God's word says because I'm in control of the situation that's just not going to happen to me and yet it happens to Solomon it happens to the guy not only is he gifted with wisdom but he has been blessed with so much prosperity. And you would think that just based on the things that God has done for him, that he would obey the commands of God, that he would make every effort, again, to, to, to walk the straight and narrow and to be faithful to the Lord. But that's not the case with Solomon. And I think another thing that happens is over the course of time, you begin to spiritually let your guard down. I mean, you know, I, I think at times, yes, there's an element of we, we mature in the Lord and we're wise as to the ways and the strategies that the enemy employs in attacking us. And again, to maybe our faith is even more settled because we know how faithful God has been in our lifetime. But at the same time, you know, the Bible says, let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Sometimes there, it's a mistake to think, you know what, I'm solid in this. I've been a Christian a long time. You don't have to worry about these particular temptations, whatever the temptation may be. I think we always have to keep our guards up. I mean, even Solomon's father, David, and again, to the relationship that, Solomon, or that, that David had with Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, should have served as a warning. Because that temptation came late in David's life. And that falling to sin came late in David's life. And the, the chain of events that took place as a result of that came late in David's life. And the same thing is here is taking place with Solomon. Matter of fact, even remember, and here's the thing, I'll just go on and read in our passage. In verse 3, it gives us a, a catalog of how many brides he had and women that he had in his harem. It says in verse 3 that he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. They turned away his heart. 
That's where the battle is won and lost. It's in the heart. That's why God says, don't do that. Now, here's the thing. It's bad enough if he would have married just one wife that was a non-believer, that was worshiping false gods. And that even if he really, 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 really loved her, if she's a non-believer and she's worshiping another God, I mean, the worship of God is something, again, to... For us as believers, the worship of of the true and the living God is something that should be important to us. And it's the same thing for even somebody that's worshiping a false god. They think they're worshiping a god that has power. And in a sense, they're, 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 you know, come on, just, just, you know, let's just burn a little incense. Let's just offer a sacrifice. You know, it's interesting, too, even as God's people were coming into the land and they, they were just, Massive in number. Numbers chapter 22 describes uh, something that takes place. The Midianites are concerned about the number of God's people that are coming into the land. They had heard how the children of Israel had defeated the Egyptians. They had heard how God had you know, provided for them miraculously while they were in the wilderness. They had heard how Jericho had fallen, how Ai had fallen. And now the Midianites are worried that, again, too, as God's people are coming into the land, what can they do? And, and what happens is the king, you know, his name is Balak, he, he decides to hire this guy who appears to be a prophet. He's not of the children of Israel, but he is a prophet and God does speak and show him things. And he decides that if he could just get this prophet to curse God's people, that it would maybe give him an upper hand. And, and basically, I'm not going to go into all the details of it. You can, you can read it in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, I believe in chapter 22. But in a nutshell, every time that he, in a sense, is being paid to try to curse God's people, he ends up blessing them. And in the end, you know, to get the money, because yet again, to, you know, Balaam wants the money. Balak will give him the money if he can curse God's people and if, again, to God, somehow he can defeat them in battle. And Balak's trying to think, I mean, Balaam's trying to think of a way, how can I get the money? I can't curse them. But what's clear or what ends up happening, and again, too, there's a cross-reference scripture. I think it's found in the book of Judges. He ends up advising Balak. He basically says, I can't, I can't curse them because God isn't cursing them. But I can tell you how God himself will judge his people. And this is the way. Send the most beautiful Midianite women down into the camp and have them Again, to engage in a relationship with the young men. And once their hearts are, in a sense, engaged and they fall in love or whatever with these women, and then the women introduce these Jewish men into the worship of their gods, then God Himself will judge them. And that's what ends up happening. And the judgment of God is severe. See, the God, the true and the living God, is a jealous God. I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, think about even to a marriage relationship or any relationship. You know, if I, I'm gonna I'm gonna not use names to protect the innocent if there really are innocent. But when we were at Calvary Chapel Oceanside, there was a young woman, and she was single, 
and she was a pretty woman. She was an attractive young woman. But she liked to flirt with some of the guys in church. And we were having a roller skating night, Christian roller skating night at the place. I don't even, do people still roller skate? And they were playing Christian music. It was kind of cool. But it was interesting because this one girl was flirting with another guy and the wife of the guy got very jealous of it. And this is all unfolding at the, the skating rink. It was like we were back in high school or something. But, you know, a any, any husband or wife would be jealous if someone else was trying to interfere with their relationship. That's how God feels about a relationship with his people. That's how serious God takes his relationship with us. He is faithful to us. He expects us to be faithful to him. And the warnings then are, are to serve as a protection against us being seduced away and our hearts going away unto other gods. And, and again, too, maybe even for us, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I'll never worship false gods. I, I know that there's a true God. And, you know, I would never worship any of these other religions or philosophies. But it's interesting how many times people's hearts are drawn away by others or even by a relationship. And again, too, it may not be that they're being drawn away to worship another God, but they're just simply being drawn away from the true and the, the living God. And it says here in our passage in verse 4 that it came to pass when Solomon was old. See, it almost gives the idea that, again, too, maybe he has this many women, again, too, because it fits everything else the abundance of everything that Solomon has. I mean, he's got gold, he's got silver, he's got wisdom, he's got prosperity, he's got building projects going on. I mean, he has it all. And again, too, to, maybe there's an element of pride to impress others as well. He wants others to be able to look and see, unlike any other king, he's got more wives and concubines than anybody else. But it says that when he's old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. I mean, you almost get the sense that it was just something that they were constantly wearing on him. Come on, honey, worship another god with me. Come on, honey, worship another god. Come on, honey, worship another god while he's sleeping. Come on, honey, worship another god with me. I mean, you know, and eventually it says that when he's old, that's when his heart is turned to worship these other gods. And it says at the end of verse 4 that his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Was David a man that was guilty of sin? Yes. And when we saw that with Bathsheba, we saw the sin that David commits to hide that sin in having Uriah put to death, the murder of Uriah. But as far as his heart was concerned, the Holy Spirit was working on his heart, bringing about conviction. David writes about it in the Psalms. But also, too, David had godly men that could confront him. Nathan the prophet would say, you're the man, David. And it's interesting because in all the description of the reign of Solomon, you, even though he does a lot of the externals, he doesn't have any prophet or any priest that maybe can come and say to Solomon the same things that were said to David and that he would receive it. 
I mean, maybe Solomon, you know, his, his reaction would be to put somebody to death. And yet, again, too, unlike his father David, his father David was willing to listen to somebody that was godly and even, too, was even questioning uh, something that David might be doing. And David was willing to consider it and to seek the Lord in prayer. But his heart, and the problem was his heart. He gets entangled in the relationships, and there goes his heart. I mean, it's that way, I suppose, with any area of sin. You know, the desires of the heart. And whether it's for another relationship or, again, to whether it's for uh, something else that we know God's Word says, you know, is sin, and yet, you know, our heart get, gets fixed on something and our heart ends up turning away from God. And, and, and it says in verse 5 that Solomon went after, and it begins to name some of these gods of the different nations that they were warned against. It says, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, completely involved in just sexual debauchery, the worship of Ashtoreth. And it says also to after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. I mean, this is going to be mentioned a number of times just as it was mentioned in verse 4. It's mentioned again here in verse 6. In verse 7, you know, David, I mean, Solomon goes even a step further. First, the sin begins in his heart turning away from God and, and beginning to worship these other gods. But now what we're going to see is Solomon's going to begin to build places of worship for these false gods. And again, too, part of it is, is not only has his heart been turned away, but I'm sure in some sense he's wanting to, again, make his wives happy because they worship these false gods. And it says in verse 7, Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and, bef and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And it says, Likewise did he for all his strange wives, or his foreign wives, which burn incense and sacrifice unto their gods. You know, it's interesting because it says there in verse 7 that, uh, that the building of this high place is in the hill that is before Jerusalem. I believe the commentators believe that the, the only place that that would probably be, if the temple is in the Temple Mount area, the only other place that would be a hill that would be in close proximity that is before Jerusalem would be to the east and it would be the Mount of Olives. Imagine that. He's built a temple in plain view of the temple that he's built for, for God himself. And the other thing is, it's not just his sin that affects him. Because now the people, and again, there's got to be some confusion because maybe if, if you're one of the, the citizens of the children of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and you remember just the glory of God descending upon the temple and the apparent dedication that Solomon had to God and the prayers that Solomon prayed to God. And if your people that are called by your name will, will cry out to you and if they're carried away captive and they remember their sin and they'll pray towards this place and, and if, you, if you cause there to be a famine or the, a defeat in the enemies and they realize what they've done in sin and they pray to you, Lord, that you would hear from heaven and, the, and you would answer. 
But now Solomon's building another temple. And it's nearby. And they hear of the king going to worship these false gods. And they may be wondering, okay, well, you know, maybe there's something to this. And Solomon's the wisest king we've ever... Maybe he was wrong, and now he realizes that the real God is the, this God of the Moabites. Maybe it really is Chemosh. Maybe we should be worshiping him. See, so many times our sin and our actions not only affect us, but they affect those that see us. And we will either bring praise and glory to the, to the God I mean, you know, to the God of the, 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 the universe, to the living God, or we'll bring reproach or shame. And I thought you were a Christian. When I was in the Marine Corps, there was a guy like that. I didn't know he was a Christian. Apparently he was. But what would happen is, is he'd go home on leave. And when, we, when he would come back from leave, while he was home on leave, he would go to church, he would repent of his sinful ways. He'd make a commitment to God. And he'd come back to the Marine Corps after a week or two weeks of being home on leave, all fired up for the Lord. And again, too, I'd known him for a good month or so, two months, three months. And I'd just known him like one of the other guys, just one of the partiers and foul mouth coming out of his, you know, foul words coming out of his mouth and, and partying and drinking and chasing women, all these things. And then all of a sudden he comes home on leave and he just seemed like a completely different guy. And he's saying, praise the Lord, and he's carrying a Bible. And I thought, well, did he get saved? And somebody else told me, no, you know, this happens every time he goes home on leave. He gets all, you know, religious. But in a week or two, he'll be back to his, as they would say, the non-believers, they say, back to his normal self. He'll be drinking and cussing and swearing and drink, you know, chasing women all this. And sure enough, that was the case. But what happens is when that, ha you know, is it, it brings shame and reproach to the name of God. Because your actions do not line up with your profession, with what you say you are. And even though it's late in Solomon's life, and God's Word, you know, it's interesting because, you know, if there's anybody that you could point to in God's Word that does not finish well. I mean, you know, as a king, Saul had every advantage. He doesn't finish well. But Solomon also, too, the son of David, does not finish well. Because his heart is just gone completely after these false gods. And it says, interesting, in verse 9, it says that the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared to, unto him twice. Again, too, God showed up twice, two times on two occasions. Remember, at the beginning of Solomon's reign, he offers a thousand you know, sacrifices, and God basically gives him a blank check to write. What is it that you'd like? What's your request? And Solomon prays for wisdom. He's a, a new king. He's a young man. He needs wisdom. God says, not only am I going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you a long life. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. You know, I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you all the things that you didn't pray for, all the things that someone selfish would pray for. I'm going to give you those things in addition to the wisdom that you asked for. And God is blessing him. But remember the second time that God again, to appears or answers Solomon is just a few chapters back in chapter 9 after the dedication of the temple. And the interesting thing is, is even then, after the dedication of the temple, 
God says to Solomon in chapter 9, verse 5, he says, I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if you at all, this is the warning. Warning. And God warns. He says, but if you at all turn from following me, you or your children and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you. And God's very specific here in verse 6. But go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them and this house which I have hallowed for my name and will cast out of my sight and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all the people. And this house which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss and they shall say, why has the Lord done this unto this land and to his house? And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought them forth and their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have taken hold upon other gods and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. Jesus in the New Testament says, To whom much is given, much more is required. You know, the non-believer doesn't receive the same kind of judgment that the believer would receive who knows the truth and then turns from it. They know what God has done. And they've hardened their heart. And that's what Solomon is guilty of. The Lord had told him, had even warned him. You'd think, okay, God's saying don't go after other gods. Well, I better watch out then. You know what, maybe I shouldn't even have taken in on all these wives. And and you know what, Don't, don't do what they say. It says in verse 11, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, and I'm just going to tell you too, I'm not going to get through the whole chapter. I'm going to end in verse 13. And we'll look at some of the adversaries of Solomon next week. But it says, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as it is done of you, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely rend or tear apart the kingdom from you, and I will give it unto your servant, notwithstanding in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom but I will give I will give one tribe and when God says I'm going to give you one tribe he means in addition to the tribe of Judah he's speaking of the tribe of Benjamin Eventually, when the kingdom is divided, there's going to be the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah that's going to consist of the tribe of Judah and of Benjamin. Significant that it's Benjamin because Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And even though at times um, the Benjamites were against the house of Judah, God brings the two of them together. And it says in verse 13, Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to thy son David, uh, I'm sorry, to thy son for David my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake which I have chosen. I have to believe that what the Lord says to Solomon and what the consequences of what Solomon has done is for the purpose of Solomon to repent. It doesn't tell us that Solomon ever repents. 
Solomon just takes that information. We're going to see at the second half of the chapter how it comes into play because there's one guy in particular beginning in verse 26. His name is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And basically he is told by the prophet Ahijah that God wants to make him king. He's going to give him ten tribes. He's going to establish his covenant with you the same way he did with David. And if you will be faithful and follow the Lord, then God basically going to do the same thing that he was intending to do with David. When Solomon hears about it, and Solomon does hear about it, he tries to have him killed. So again, too, he doesn't take his heart has been drawn away. I mean, the only thing that can be done for a sinful heart is to receive the correction that God has. And I just bring all this up because, you know, we're living in a day where it is harder to live for Jesus Christ. I think it is. I mean, there's so many things, enticements, there are so many temptations, there are so, so much antagonism against Christianity. There's so much attack on the Word of God. There's so much attack on our values that we have as believers. It, it used to be, you know, that our godly values at least were something that were accepted and even revered in our country. And now we're viewed as being archaic and narrow-minded and bigoted and all these different things. We're mocked. But I think it's just a sign of the days that we're living in. And it demonstrates the hardness of people's hearts. And the thing I just simply encourage you is just remember all the things that God has done for you. Remember the ways in which the Lord has blessed you. Remember the miraculous ways in which God has even communicated to you and has shown himself to be real in your life. Remember the forgiveness that you've received. Remember the answered prayers. Remember the miraculous way that God has worked and wants to continue to work in your life. And even though there are things that are trying to, to draw you away, stand firm in the things that you believe. Finish well. Solomon did not finish well. David, his father, did finish well. There's examples in the scripture of those that have finished well and there are examples of those in the scripture that did not finish well. Let this just be an encouragement to us to finish well. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, I ask that you'd bless your people. And Lord, also too, if this is a warning, that we would listen to the warning. When the temptations come, that we would remember that we've been warned and that we would guard against going after temptations, guard against sin, guard against going after other gods or other things that we would put in your place. Even your word says that covetousness is idolatry, Lord. Lord, just help us in these days that we're living in. Help us to have the armor that you have available for us always on. Lord, just ask that you'd bless your people, bind the enemy from his attacks. And Lord, help us to stand strong in these days that we're living in. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.
God bless you.